Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hello, Ward. Greetings, Eric. How are you, friend? I am super, super excited because of the gentleman that is on the podcast today. But before we get into doing our soft intro on him, it is always good to wake up in the morning knowing that you are powered by you were going up sort of perfect steps on a scale to a new mm. range maybe like i don't know if you got into your falsetto there but if you did it was so smooth i didn't even notice well that's how you do it when you're a pro <laughs> i'm taking notes yeah i can honestly say no one does the peak siren call better than me it's true yeah singular and that's a fact that is a fact <laughs> i can also say no one nobody does it does it worse <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listen, uh, I, I, we're doing this on Zoom because we're still uh, respecting social distancing. I saw just a second ago that you had a nice sip of a beverage. And I, of course, saw the beautiful, beautiful glass that you took that sip out of. Tell us about that glass that you're sipping out of, Ward. Well, I didn't miss my chance to get a piece of Hoosier history because the great people at collegegradshop.com forward slash hysterics hooked a brother up with four of these pint glasses, each four different Indiana logos frosted tastefully, subtly on one side. As frosted as the tips on Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell. <laughs> I don't know. Is that I, what they told us to say? I think, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was in the email. I don't know if I forwarded <laughs> that to you. But I, I can honestly say, since I received these, our four courtesy swag ones, I've drank 90% of all beverages morning, noon, and night out of them because they feel good. They have large volume. Uh, things just taste better knowing you're a part of Hoosier history. And I'll tell you this, these dudes gave us free glasses. I'm still waiting on a free month from Mike Pegram on pigs.com. I mean, how about just one month? 
one month would be great. You know, I mean, I mean every every so often you get to see these promotions that Peaks puts out, like sixty percent off or pay for one month, get five months free. I mean, my God, I've been paying every month for like twelve years. Can can a brother get one month? We're we're gonna hold the next uh, uh, next episode of Reasonable Rabbi hostage until until we <laughs> until we get one year vouchers at least. Somebody on the Peaks message boards reached out and said, uh, "Hey, you guys are now uh, labeled on our like." Thing. I as, saw that as staff. staff. Yeah. I'm like, Does staff have to pay a monthly membership? Because <laughs> that's what's happening with this staff. The staff is getting staffed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got to love that the way we find out that we're staff is from somebody telling us on the message board. <laughs> Another great reason why you should subscribe to pigs.com while sipping out of those beautiful glasses. I'm excited because I'm moving on Friday and I. It, you gave me the box of, of beautiful glasses. I have not opened them. I wanted that to be the first beverage that I have at the new place will be from those glasses. So they are packed away as they came and I am excited to open it up. I can almost see the picture you're going to tweet right now. It's, yeah, it, 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 you can almost it, see it. Yeah, like maybe you wedge a cigar into your uh, fingers while holding the glass, but maybe it's just the glass. That's good. I like that a lot. We don't charge for any content. We won't. We're not going to ask you guys to give us money. Although I will say there's been a few people who have reached out to us to say that they wanted to donate directly to us, which we totally appreciate. We are not uh, going to be doing that anytime soon, although we do greatly appreciate it. But we and, like and, and Eric, do do keep those people's information because times <laughs> times times might get tough. Yeah, fair I, enough. Fair I want to be able to get back to them. Yeah, we will be reaching back out. <laughs> but the big thing is. We like supporting small businesses. Collegegradshop.com is a small business. They're associated with Indiana University. They have a license from Indiana to sell those glasses. So you help them and you help us a little bit because we get a piece of the glasses that people buy with that address that we gave. Part of their business model going into this, they were going to be out there at Memorial Stadium before the football games this fall and, and even with some of maybe the basketball games if, if that happened fast enough for them. And so a whole part of their business model was just gutted with what's going on in the world right now. So by by helping them make it through this time here, hopefully it's something where whether it's online or in the future in the real world, you'll see their smiling faces out there with not just these great pint glasses, the, the wine glasses, the tumblers, but more stuff in the future if we can help them make this work in the meantime. All right, now let's get to the good stuff. Listen, when you and I started this podcast, we talked about who were like the dream people to have on. And we have been fortunate to have several of those kind of dream people. Yeah. But there was one who kind of stood apart, truthfully, from everybody else because he was such a blip on the radar screen when it came to Indiana, but a powerful blip. And one whose legacy is that uh, of just one of the greatest seasons in the history of college basketball, let alone one of the greatest seasons, and statistically the greatest season ever at Indiana University. He was a legend amongst legends. The stuff that that your parents tell you stories about. And I just never thought we would have a chance to talk to this great man. It's in, in doing some homework for this conversation and having seen some clips, some interviews in years past, but like, okay, this is what I'm going to spend tonight doing. 
And in doing that, there's people like, oh, say, Julius Irving talking about how great of a player this was and teammate for that matter. When you're watching footage of him being inducted to the Basketball Hall of Fame and the just incredible ability and physical dominance that he brought to the game for a decade plus, most of it in the great state of Indiana. Because as great of a Hoosier as he was, he was an even greater paster because he there's championships and there's many seasons, MVP seasons. And it's like, and, and let's, you know, we're going to get into his high school career in Indiana. This guy is as great of an Indiana basketball player at all levels as there's ever been. Totally. And I get into it a little bit in the interview and, and, and in the intro, but also I, I think I mentioned it to, to him during the interview. But every conversation with my father, who, you know, obviously my parents met in Indiana, everybody who listens to this knows that now. My dad was a huge reason, and my mom, that I'm a fan of Indiana. But every time a conversation came up about who's the greatest player, and I, of course, would float, well, it's got to be Alford or Calvert Chaney, you know, or, I, you know, I would, of course, go with the guys that I got to see, and I would then bring up Isaiah, and he would say, no, 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 no. let me just stop you. <laughs> there was a guy who played at Indiana for only one year who was LeBron before LeBron. He was a man amongst boys, and it was a pleasure to watch him play. And so getting to talk to this gentleman uh, was a true, true honor. And, uh, and I want to say the reason we were able to talk to him, it's what this community that has come together around this podcast that has supported us is so meaningful to us. Bill Murphy, the great Indiana University fan and historian. Bill has been so good to us in giving us context for some interviews. He helped us out greatly in getting Tom Van Arsdale and then Dick Van Arsdale, who made an appearance on that. Tom Van Arsdale is the reason we got to talk to this gentleman today. So thank you, Bill. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Indiana, for uh, supporting this podcast that gives us this platform to talk to these legends because it is just the honor of a lifetime. Hope you guys enjoy it a fraction as much as we did, because this man has it all. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, wow, wow. Uh, this is as exciting as it gets for somebody who is a fan of Indiana basketball, not just at the college level, but at all levels. Eric, please let the people know what this gentleman has accomplished in his amazing basketball career. Buckle in, everybody. Here we go. We are talking to a gentleman who was awarded Mr. Basketball in the state of Indiana in 1969 after winning a state championship. After that, he was also awarded Mr. Basketball in the entire country in 1969. He was first team all Big Ten his one season at Indiana University, All-American in 1971. He has the highest scoring average in a season all time at Indiana at 29.9 points per game. We are going to ask him later on if he's upset that he didn't hit that 30.0, but we'll get to that later. He has the fourth best rebounding season average of all time at 14.7 rebounds. He has, th this stat just blows me away. He is fifth all time at Indiana University in 20.10 in rebound games. Fifth all time. He did it in one season. <laughs> 
He is tied for number one all-time in a career at Indiana with 30.10 rebound games. Number one, one season. He is a three-time ABA All-Star. He is a three-time NBA All-Star. He is a two-time ABA champion. He is All-NBA First Team 1976. He is an NBA Hall of Famer inducted in 2017, one of only four Indiana Hoosier players to have that honor. He was the ABA Playoffs MVP in 1975. He is simply put, one of the greatest players to ever play the game of basketball. We are honored and privileged to speak to Big George McGinnis. Welcome, George. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. So when you hear all of those accomplishments, when you just hear all those listed for you, which I'm sure you've heard at various times in your life, is there one that sticks out to you that that you are just most proud of or one that just brings a real smile to your face? Well, yeah, I, I think for me it, it's got to be the Indiana State High School Basketball Championship. You know, kids grow up here in our state um, playing basketball at a very early age where it's almost ingrained in us. And um, watching the state championship uh, games as a young boy with my dad um, – always inspired me to you know want to play the game and I would always think uh you know playing out in the backyard you know me playing in a state championship game and seeing the guys get that little gold ring that they got that that was one of the most satisfying the most satisfying feeling I think I've ever had in the game well let's let's get into that a little bit more I did go back and watch your hall of fame induction speech and you said there were two things that occurred in 1956 as a six-year-old boy that led you to love the game of basketball and embrace it. Can you, can you tell us about those? Yeah. Yeah. It was the first time that I actually, I, you know, I got to read about Oscar Robinson all the time in the newspapers the local newspapers, but never saw him. Uh, didn't live too far away from him at the time. Um, but, Seeing him win uh, in 1956, that was uh, that was one of the things was that was so inspiring. Not only for me, I think for but for every kid in that neighborhood that I lived in. And so it was the next day um, on a Sunday. We were all out in the backyard shooting hoops, you know, and uh, that that was a start for me. I was six years old, and wow. and you were able to watch him play because your family had a television set. Now, right? Yeah, we had an old raggedy television set where we had a, you know, we had to use a clothes hanger for antenna, and you know, it kept going in and out. And my dad kept saying, "Keep changing." I, I missed part of the game just from changing the antenna around for the entire game. But it was a, it was a really, really good game, and it was so much fun to watch, and uh, it it really left a mark on me, and as well as a lot of other kids in my neighborhood. When uh, when did you start playing basketball at the famous Meadowood Park? I started playing there in high school. I was about 15 years old. And what were those games like? Oh, they were brutal. Brutal. You you had one chance. If you if you won, you stayed out there. If you didn't, you might not play for another four or five games. So it was uh, it was incredible. It brought uh, guys from all over Central Indianapolis who played on, you know, on Saturday afternoons. And it was, it was really competitive, a lot of fun. Um, end up, 
making a lot of friends, but boy, that was, uh, that was really a fun time. One of the most competitive, um, I would say, summer basketball that you could find was Meadowwood Park back in those days. Now, when did the, the fates allow you and Steve Downing to find each other as friends and teammates? Was it, was it prior to high school or was it once you guys got to school? Right in the eighth grade, you know, I met Steve and then uh, knew him slightly. We went to different, we went to different middle schools, um, but we played Steve's school uh, during the regular season um, that year. And then when he, but he was just a little guy. He was about five nine at that point hmm. in eighth grade, and he was five ten in Washington when he was a senior. I mean, was uh, a freshman. Wow, and I was. And I was six foot, almost six five. So he uh, he grew almost a foot in high school. As a senior, he was six foot nine. So he was a late bloomer, but he uh, kept improving. And every time he come back to school the next year, he just he'd be a totally different person. I think, oh my God, I don't even know this guy. How many inches did he grow? And uh, and and but we become fast friends right away. We played all the time together. And uh, we, I still talk to him at least once or twice a week to this day. When did you know, George, that basketball was not just going to be something that you enjoyed playing, but something that could help get you, you know, to the next level, get you a, a scholarship in college and, and perhaps play professionally? When did that start to enter into your consciousness? I think it was about my junior year. My uh, my my coach, my high school coach, came to me and told me that um, that he had received a couple of letters from colleges about a possible scholarship opportunity for me to play, and that's when it really really hit. You know, I thought you know I've heard coaches told me when I was a sophomore, you know, you might be good enough to, you know, play in Division One college basketball. You just got to keep working hard. And then I started getting the letters, and that kind of certified things for me, and uh, that that was inspiring, you know. And then I end up with about uh, three or four hundred letters in all, because part of them were for football and part of them were for basketball. So, when you were growing up, obviously Oscar Robertson was somebody that you looked up to. Uh, right. As far as Indiana University basketball players at the time, when you were a kid, the Van Arsdales were big players at Indiana University. Did they mean anything to you growing up? Oh, absolutely. The Van Arsdales, Rick Mount. You know, I remember the Van Arsdales, I think it was in 63 that they played in the high school state championship game. And I remember them foul- I remember one of them fouling out, and they end up losing the game. But the... Um, but the vision that I got locked in my mind was the crying, how disappointed they were that they had gotten beat. And um, I felt so bad for them. And years later, I got the opportunity to not only, only meet them, but play against them. And I, I can tell you, I don't think I've ever met two finer guys than the Van Arsdale twins. They, they are just unbelievable. Now, you had mentioned um, high school coach getting scholarship offers. You actually had two great high school basketball coaches. Can you talk about Jerry Oliver and Bill Green and what made them so outstanding and how they influenced your approach to the game? Well, Jerry, Jerry Oliver uh, was whom I, it was the first uh, I played for at Washington. Uh, he brought me on to the varsity team as a freshman, gave me an opportunity and 
you know, he kept encouraging me, but he was a, he was strong on fundamentals and dribbling with both hands and, you know, doing all kinds of different drills, uh, a lot of working on just, you know, fundamental basketball and a really, really good coach. And uh, he not only ended up going to, after my junior year, he left for IU and became an assistant coach down there. And I eventually ended up going there. And then after leaving IU, he became an assistant coach with the Pacers where I was. So he was a coach for me at every level. It, I don't think it was a coincidence that Jerry Oliver ended no. up at Indiana University. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I put in a couple of good words for him for sure. There. But... Uh, and then Bill Green, who ended up taking over for Jerry after uh, he left our junior year, uh, he came in our senior year, and he's probably the most legendary, celebrated high school coach in Indiana basketball basketball history. He won six state championships. He, the first one was with Washington, my high school, and uh, he was just uh, he was a, a guy who knew how to inspire. He he knew how to get the best out of you by putting things in front of you. You know, one of the great things, and I can tell you, this is how bad things were for us in terms of not having money or access to anything. He told us one practice before the season started. He goes, yeah, I know you guys. We, we used to go to White Castle all the time. Every time we got a, a couple of bucks. White Castle is a is a little slow. They're called sliders here. I don't know if you, you guys probably oh, know. Oh, yeah, we know them well. We know them well. <laughs> well, well, Bill Green um, – after the last practice before the season started, he goes, I know you guys are always going to White Castle. So he says, I'm going to make you a deal. He says, if you, for every game you win, we'll go to White Castle, and each one of you can have eight to ten White Castles apiece. And <laughs> we went we went 31-0. and 0. <laughs> <laughs> But he was he was really an inspiring coach. He had a he had a legendary matchup zone defense that he we played and he went around and taught that to different colleges, Notre Dame, IU and different other places. And then he went on to Marion uh, High School in Marion, Indiana, and ended up winning five more championships there. So he was a great, great guy. He, he now has passed, but uh, he left a very big mark on the high school game here in Indiana. Uh, we have to ask. George, when was the last time you had a White Castle slider? Uh, about a month ago. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't eat as many now, but every now and then you get a craving and you say, oh, man, come on, I'll get a, you know, give me four or five of them and just boom. Ward and I were uh, back in Indiana in February. Brings for back a, a lot of good memories. Yes. Ward and I were back in Indiana in February. And uh, we we took different flights to get in, and Ward got in very late, like around midnight. And he called me. I was waiting for him at the hotel, and he said, "I just got to make one stop before I get to the hotel. Right. Stop by White Castle and brought me some burgers too." <laughs> there you go. There you go. Everybody here knows White Castle. Man. That's they right. Were, they were a legendary place. Yeah. Well, can we get in a little bit to that magical senior season for you and Steve and Wayne Pack and and Bill Green and your other teammates? First of all, just paint a picture for us what it was like a, a gym, your gym, let's say your gym at Washington, Friday night, a rival team comes to town, right. a, a good team, or comes across town, I should say. What was that atmosphere like? What was the the passion, the excitement when it's still single-class yeah. basketball at the high school level? It, it was electric. Um, you know, um, 
everyone went to high school basketball games back then and every high school gym was packed on Friday and Saturday night. And everybody wore their team colors and our team colors were purple and white. So everybody would come on, come in the gym with a white sweater or a purple sweater. Bill Green wore a lot of purple sweaters as a coach. So, you know, it was, it was so inspiring because, you know, you got the cheerleaders, you got the fans, it's loud. Um, there, you know, we've got the largest high school gyms uh, in the country here in Indiana. I think there's eight of them. And uh, we didn't have a big gym. We played a lot of our home games at Butler and Indiana Central College here um, just because we didn't have enough room wow. for the So um, it, was, it was really inspiring. Just coming out to warm up, you know, you were just geeked up, you know. Mm-hmm. In, in high school, George, who was the team that you liked to play against the most and beat? Well, in Indianapolis, there were several teams, you know. It was very, very competitive. You had Attics, where Oscar Robinson had went to school. You had uh, Tech High mm-hmm. School, who ended up going to a state finals during that time. A lot of guys who ended up playing in the NBA during that era, too. And uh, so there was four or five schools that were great competitors. I would say our biggest competitor was, uh, at, during the time I was in high school, was Short Ridge High School. They seemed to always give us the toughest time. We had the toughest time beating them. They beat us in our junior year uh, by really just holding the basketball, slowing the basketball down, and end up. Um, uh, it was a huge disappointment because we were favored to win that year as well. Uh, but they played an excellent ball game and beat us in a very tight, low-scoring game. What did you learn from that loss that you took into the next year and, and helped shape you going forward as a competitor? Well, I think, you know, we went in the locker room. I think it was a talk that we got from our coach, Jerry, uh, who told us, you know, never, you're, you're never too good to be beaten. And, um, you know, we had played this team a couple of times during the regular season and had beat them thoroughly. And uh, they came out and, um, you know, won that, that third game in, in, the, in, the, in the regionals. So it was, you know, always, you know, you always got to be prepared. You know, every game is important. It's just like the NCAA tournament. You know, there's, there's no room for a bad game. You've got to be ready to play every single game. And that's the mindset we had coming into my senior year. <clears throat> well, your me. senior year, you go undefeated at 31-0, and 0, and like you said, that state championship still sticks out to you as the thing you that, that you are most proud of. The other right. thing that was happening your senior year, I don't, I'm not sure, I, I think you probably are aware of this, but Oscar Robertson was the all-time leading scorer in the state of Indiana high school basketball until right. you broke his record your senior year. Do you remember right. that? I mean, it is such a storied record to this day. Damon Bailey is now the all-time leading scorer and has been, you know, for over 20 years or, yeah, about 20 years now, right? Uh, 30. 30 years, 30 years. What was that like for you to to overtake your hero uh, in that record? Well, it was unbelievable because, um, you know, I, I always held him to the highest of esteem. He was, he was kind of our hero. He grew up in our community. He was from my city. And, you know, I get to see him every other few, every few weeks or so on national television when they did broadcast the NBA game in those days, played for the Cincinnati Royals. But it was incredible. I got the ball, and it's over at uh, my mom's house that uh, was presented to me at, after the game. And uh, it's one of my most prized possessions. 
Oh, that's incredible. Well, and you really sealed the deal there um, uh, with your point total by recording 148 points in the last four games of that undefeated championship season to go on to win Mr. Basketball. What did it mean to you? You know, your parents moved up from from Alabama in search of a better life for not only themselves, but of course, the next generation. What did that mean to to not only win that, but then go on to represent the state as an Indiana All-Star? Well, that was that was another high point in my high school career. Like I said, it was it meant everything to me. It, it meant, meant that, you know, being Mr. Basketball, you represented not only Indiana, but your city, your state, your high school, your fans, your parents. It, it was all rolled into uh, to one for me, so it was a great honor. Now, there's a story that I heard in these these classic Indiana-Kentucky All-Star games that happened after the season that right. that I have heard told to me now from several people that, that were around then. But you play Kentucky at in, in Indiana, and then you play them once in Kentucky. After the Indiana yep. game... I heard there was some trash talking going on from the Kentucky players about you specifically. Do you remember this story? Yeah, I do. Uh huh. Please tell us. Well, uh, there was a big rugged guy named Joe Voskiel. He was about six foot eight, uh, probably about two twenty. That's pretty good size for a high school kid, especially back in those days. And uh, he guarded me, and you know he's tried to be very physical. I had a, I thought I had an okay game. I think in the first game I had 21 points or something like that, 10 or 12 rebounds. We won the game, uh, but then after the game, you know, he had made the comments says, "Well, I've heard all this stuff about McGinnis. He doesn't seem to be that great to me." <laughs> I, I, I've played pickup games with Oscar Robinson because he lived in that tri-state area of Cincinnati and. Kentucky and all that, and he had said he had played some pickup games with Oscar, and there's no, there's nothing I can see that compares him to anybody that's really that good. So, so then uh, the second game we played, the first game we played in Indianapolis at Butler University, and uh, second game we played at the University of Louisville. I mean, at Louisville Freedom Hall down there, and um, so. Uh, you know, it was ironic. That was the last game my dad saw me play. My dad was killed in a construction accident about three weeks after that uh, Kentucky All-Star, the last Kentucky All-Star game. And uh, I had 53 points and 31 rebounds. <laughs> did you say anything to him afterwards, or did you uh, look at not, him? Not, not really, but he came over and said something to me. He hugged me and says. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, this is what he says. I, he says, I, I made a big mistake. I says, no problem. Wow. Now, and you know, the kid has called me kid several times over the years. He says, Hey, hey, George, this is Joe. You remember me? I said, I'll never forget you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> you did lose your father so, so shortly yeah. after that. How right. did that loss? Uh, affect you not only as a young man, but did did you change the trajectory of the way you approached the game of basketball? Well, you know, I my dad was a, he was a real solid guy, man's man. You know, um, my mom was a great woman, and he wanted her to stay home and take care of the kids, which is what she'd done. He worked two jobs. And uh, he worked in a factory at night, and he worked construction during the day. Well. He was working at a company called Eli Lilly, which is a very famous drug company 
as we all know, and uh, he was working on a project over there and fell off of a building, off of a scaffold and killed himself. Mm -hmm. And he was killed from the accident. But um, it just um, put uh, a whole new perspective on, I had never been around death. And it was my first time being associated with it. I never had any of my friends or friend family that died. I. I went to funerals for grandparents and things of that nature, but nothing so close. And my dad was only 42 years old, by the way. Mm-hmm. So um, it was uh, it was uh, a thought that how can I how can I help my mom out? What can I do to make life better for her? So I did work in the summers, and then she started working, and uh, you know we made it through. And uh, but it was tough. It was really tough. Do you remember around that time when that happened or in the wake of that, thinking to yourself, I have a chance to play professional basketball and and make some decent money. I've got to get there as quickly as I possibly can. Um, Yeah, especially after my sophomore year, I I knew that I I was going to be leaving. Yeah, yeah, I thought, you know, that was the best way and the quickest way to make some money where I could make a serious impact on my mom's life. Yeah. And not to jump ahead, but just a button on that. And and what did you do with your uh, initial signing bonus when you went professional? Uh, I bought my mom a house, which mm-hmm. she still lived in, and she just died about uh, nine months ago. And uh, I, uh, she lived in that house for over fifty years. I mean, about forty forty some years, and. Um, so she was very, very happy, and uh, I was just so happy that I was able to um, help her because she had done, her and my dad had done so much for me. It was just a way to say thank you and how much I loved her and appreciated everything for being such a good mother to me and my sister. We, we, we talk a lot to, to former players, and we've talked to many coaches' sons or uh kids that grew up with their dad kind of pushing them into basketball or teaching them the game. And I think one of the most overlooked kind of support systems that exists here is how important the moms are in the shaping of of basketball players and any athlete, really. And clearly, your mom was a strong woman that that helped you get to where you got. Yeah, it's really amazing. Uh, You know, you go out throughout all the history of the NBA or even professional sports in particular, and especially the African-American players, one of the first things they do with their money is buy their mom a home. Hmm. And um, it's almost a tradition now. And uh, so it was, it was really, uh, it really made me feel good. And, and uh, my mom ended up having a, a really nice, comfortable life. And she lived to be 92 years old. Wow. Now you, you did have to make a stop uh, on the collegiate tour before you went to the professional ranks. Can you take us through the decision-making process to to go to Indiana University along with Steve? Well, you know, after Jerry Oliver left, or my coach at Washington for the first three years there, and he took the job at Indiana, me and Steve had pretty much decided, myself and Steve Downing, had pretty much decided we wanted to go to the same school. And we had talked the previous summer, and we talked about staying close close to home and um we wanted to to you know we we looked at a couple different schools but iu was always our number one choice so going into our senior year we pretty much knew we were going to to iu together you were recruited by adolph rupp at uh, kentucky correct yes uh-huh and 
at that time in your basketball life, you know, Ward and I and uh, and our kids obviously hate Kentucky. We have to hate Kentucky, just part of oh, who we are. Yeah. Did you have Absolutely. any? Did you have any feeling for Kentucky or the Purdue rivalry as you made your decision to go to Indiana in high school? Well, yeah, I knew about the rivalry, but it wasn't it wasn't ingrained in my head like seasoned veterans who had uh, already been to college and experienced the IU Kentucky. You know, all I knew was about was a high school rivalry. I wasn't so ingrained in the in the college level rivalry. I did know that IU and Purdue uh, had a big rivalry because they were interstate schools. But uh, Kentucky, I knew that there was a rivalry, but it never. It, it never hit me like like that, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I was aware of it, but it didn't play a big role. So just to set the stage here, this is a time in college basketball where freshmen were not eligible to play the varsity basketball. Right. You get to campus, you and Steve Downing. Indiana basketball right. was in a little bit, not a little bit, in a big slump. Uh, yes. It had been many years since the Branch McCracken glory years. The Van Arsdales, who had some decent teams, are gone. And Indiana yeah. is really a bottom dweller in the Big Ten. Uh, right. The joke that I have heard told to me many times is that the best team on campus your freshman year did not play uh, collegiate basketball. And uh, yeah. And and what was it like for you that freshman year, knowing that you could help but you weren't allowed to? Yeah, it was it was really tough, confusing. Um, and then, um, you know, you couldn't dunk a basketball back then either. You know? Right. So that, that whole process of all the new rules that had come into the game uh, seemed like it just short-sighted us, being big guys and everything. Um, it, it hurt us. And it was because of a guy named Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He was so dominant that they changed the rules because of him. So, um, you know, we played intramural ball back in those days and we got a little freshman team and you know we played against some different kids from around uh, the campus but we did get to play the varsity team one one uh, one time and we beat them pretty well <laughs> <laughs> was it was it uh something where y- you were frustrated but it somehow was an opportunity to really hone your game were you able to even be around any of the coaches to help develop or was it all on you while you were waiting to come into the program <laughs> It was pretty much you were on your own. You know, we had, uh, you know, I, I think I went to, I went to all the games, but uh, that was it. Never got, I never went to any of the practices. Um, we we just played around the campus. So, and then every now and then when the gym was open, they would let us sneak in there and shoot. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of restrictions on freshmen back in those days. So it was pretty frustrating where you've been playing ever since, you know, seven, eight years old and all of a sudden you take got to take a year off how, how much fun was it just to be on that beautiful campus with with all those uh, uh wonderful fun loving people around you oh man it was it was the greatest two years of my life i don't think uh, that i could ever ask for anything else um, that i had more fun and enjoyed so much it's an incredibly beautiful campus of all the limestone buildings and um, going up and down the hills and walking to class and meeting different people from all over the state and all over the country as well. And um, it was it was a great experience for me. So your freshman year ends, 
there is a buzz on campus, and I can speak uh, once removed about this because my father was there at the time, and he right. told and he has told me along with many other people, like great IU historian Bill Murphy, who I believe you know as well, that there was an excite there was an excitement because of of you and, and Steve Downing, but there was a real thought that this could really be the class that gets Indiana back. Clearly, Lou Watson thought the same thing, and now your sophomore year starts. What do you remember about just finally, after a year off, being able to play in those first couple games? Well, it was it was it was incredible. We played in the old Phil House back in those days, you know, and uh, they had, they were just starting to build Assembly Hall mm-hmm. uh, my freshman year, and um, so it was it was exciting. It was. Um, you know, you got that place packed and, you know, you, all the red and white, uh, the IU song and the theme song of the college. It was it was really, really exciting. It was now, boy, I'm back in my element again. You know, this is where I, this is why I came here, you know. Well, the third game of the year, you are welcomed into that rivalry we touched on when number five Kentucky comes to town. And again, you are coming out of several years of of really poor performance from the Indiana basketball team, but you guys are giving them all they can handle. The game is tied. It is, it feels like this is kind of the coming out party for this new era of Indiana basketball. You take them to the end of the game. It's a tie game with just seconds left. Do you remember what happens at the end of regulation? I, I, I have never, ever been able to get this out of my mind. Yeah, we, um, we uh, we got a rebound and uh, the score was tied and um, John Ritter was passed the ball and there was a few seconds left on the clock and I instinctively I thought I saw Luke signal for a timeout and he didn't and I called timeout and he just slung up a seventy footer and it was all net. And boy, my heart sunk. So we ended up losing the game, and I it took me a long time to get over that. A long time, but yeah, it's 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 one of the great stories that's told about IU basketball to this day. And and just to to make sure everybody gets it, so he flings it, but at the same time, on another part of the court, you thought the coach was asking for a timeout, so you called a timeout, yeah. basically simultaneously. Yes. And then I mean, yes, and then your stomach just has to drop when you see that ball go through the hoop. Oh, my. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then as I walked to the bench, now the whole coaching staff and all the teammates are looking at me like, <laughs> what, do, what do you do? And then I, it, found, it finally hit me and Lou says, I didn't call timeout. And uh, I just thought, he says, we don't want him to set up. He says, why'd you do that? I says, I thought I saw you call a timeout. But it was one of the great disappointments especially early in my career, third game, you had that happen. I felt like I cost my team the game, you know. Well, you scored 38 points and 20 rebounds in that game and clearly are the reason that the team won many games, including the next game against number 7 Notre Dame, where you go to Notre Dame and you win that game, which sets off a a win streak of three in a row. So things do seem to be turning around. The Big Ten season starts – Northwestern was your first Big Ten game. You go off for 38 points and 23 rebounds. I mean, just saying these numbers, George, for us, it just sounds like we're talking about a video game here. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
it, you had to be excited here that like things were really turning around for Indiana. Yes. Oh, yeah. We were on the upswing, and you know there was a lot of interest. You know, a lot of people were interested in Indiana basketball again. Uh, the, 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 we were filling up the arena, and um, a lot of excitement. Yeah. So everyone felt good at that time. So now you're starting to to travel some, and and from what I understand, there you know wasn't a lot of that in your high school career. What's it like going to you know uh, the other Big Ten schools, Minnesota, Ohio State? You know, this oh, is yeah. this is going to be your life for a long time to come. What was it like to be a traveling basketball stud? Well, it was it was an, it was incredible. Uh, you know, we had a little we had a prop plane that Indiana had at the time that we flew the games. Uh, uh, and uh, to see the different campuses. And it was always in the wintertime, like Michigan. It was the coldest place I, I think I was at in the whole time. Wisconsin, I thought, was one of the most beautiful campuses uh, I had ever been to or seen in Big Ten. And uh, so we got to experience a lot. of uh, Michigan State was, uh, was, was good, and um, it, it was just a great experience being able to try. Ohio State was incredible. That was an incredible school. So yeah, it was it was great. Not only now we're not playing just in Indiana, we're playing you know all across the Midwest uh, and parts of the United States. You know. And what does that traveling do for a team to to bond you guys and bring you closer together? Well, it's a time for you know, you know, you can sit and strategize strategize about the the team you're going to play. You can just have fun talking on the plane. Uh, most guys are, you know, got uh, listening to it, you know, something on uh, on their little radio or something like that. So, coaches giving out uh, stuff that we can look at about the other team. It's a great bonding time. So the uh, season goes on for a while. You take uh, back then. There was a bit of a semester break uh, right. for finals. You come back for one kind of tune-up game before getting back into the Big Ten season. That tune-up game ends up being a memorable one because you score your Indiana and career high in college. You go off for 45 points and 20 rebounds against Northern Illinois. Right. Uh, and then you play Purdue in a, 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 a tough game where you lose, but that sets off a win streak where you win six in a row. And, right. and you really set yourself up for to to really have a chance at winning the conference. And back right. then, you had to win the conference to get to the NCAA tournament. Right. So it feels, heading into your last four games, I believe you're a game out of the Big Ten lead. And then right. things really start to falter. And IU loses three of four. But the other interesting thing that's happening that I'd love your perspective on is – there really becomes this anti-Lou Watson sentiment from the fan base. It becomes a fairly toxic time for Lou. Right. Right. And, and then there is this classic story of after, the, after you guys actually beat Iowa in your one win of the last four games, several players from the team sit down with Dr. John Brown, a professor at IU, to really right. go to him and say, things aren't working with Lou. What do you remember about that time and what was happening on the team? Well, you know, Lou had recruited a lot of uh, all-star type players. Some of them um, didn't get to play as much as they thought they wanted to. And uh, there was a group that just kind of turned on him. Um, Lou, I, Lou wasn't one of the all-time great coaches that we've ever seen, but he was a really good, good guy. He, he knew the game very, very well. 
he, you know, he, he played for, um, you know, the old coach there at IU. Um, Branch Bracken, yeah. And uh, he loved Branch, and so he, he brought a lot of the Branch philosophy uh, with him uh, during his time at IU. I, I, I truly enjoyed playing for him. Uh, but there were several guys who, you know, did not like him. And during that period, there was a lot of protesting. You know, that was the, remember the Olympics uh, with uh, the um, Tommy, uh, what's his name? The, the, you know, that's just a classic poster. Oh, that, sure, like, the track star. Yeah. Yes. And then uh, during that same year, our, our high, the Indiana football team had a problem. And they saw all the black players on that team protested about some issues and problems that they were having. And this, I don't know if this was a carryover with that or what, but it was something I didn't agree with. I didn't, I, you know, because I was playing, obviously, but right. there was a lot of guys felt like, you know, Lou just wasn't getting the job done. And um, that also played a big role in me saying, okay, I don't need any more of this. I'll just turn pro. Right. Well, to reflect on this season, which one could be argued was the the single greatest individual season that ever occurred at Indiana University, did you did you just feel in in dominating opponents that way that it was something where the 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 professional ranks you know, were obviously a given that you were going to go there, but did you, did you already understand at that level how well you could do at the next, or was there still a little anxiety about how well you would do going against grown men getting paid for the game? Well, at that point, I, I pretty well knew that I had the ability to play at that level. I don't know if I ever thought I had the ability to be at the same level I was in high school and college, because now, you know, every level, the competition gets better. And there's guys not only as good as you, but better than you as you move up. So um, I did, you know, being here in Indianapolis, I got to meet several of the Pacers. And uh, my senior year in high school, several of them came, um, came to the game, to my high school game, several of them. And it's uh, Freddie Lewis, who was one of the all-time great uh, guards in the ABA. He says, man, you could play for our team right now. You could help us right now. <laughs> yeah. that, that started putting thoughts in my head, you know what I mean? So um, I knew I could contribute, but I didn't know how effective. I knew I could do something, but I didn't know how effective I could be. So just to put a button on your Indiana career, and, and something that I think we've mentioned before on this podcast, but it doesn't get enough um, attention because of the way it ended with with Lou. No one says a bad word about Lou. They may not have liked playing for him, but everybody says what you said. He was a classy guy. One of the all-time great guys. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's okay. I was just going to say the way he left. So all of this pressure comes to him. He actually steps aside. Jerry Oliver right. coaches the last game of the season. But the right. most amazing thing about Lou Watson is, of course, Bob Knight is then brought in. Lou right. Watson remains on staff of the athletic department. And he and Coach Knight actually become very friendly. Coach Watson, right. despite being kind of moved off the team against his own wishes, loves Indiana so much that does whatever he can to help smooth the transition to the next coach. I think that just speaks to the class of this man. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the kind of guy he was. And I think he ended up working for another 30 to 35 years for the university yes. uh, in different capacities. So, you know, I always see him at golf outings or, you know, different functions for the school that I that I would attend. But, uh, yeah, he, he was uh, he was an IU guy. He bled blue and uh, he, he bled uh, red and white, let me tell you. Yeah, that's great. So Destiny calls, and, and it's time to pursue your professional dreams. Can you talk us through how you found yourself going back home to play for your hometown Indiana Pacers? Well, again, you know, I'm in a unique position. Um, back in those days, an ABA team, um, if there was a guy uh, in your area, uh, you had you could you could you could go and get him. You got a right, kind of a right of first refusal, territorial the, rights, right? Right, exactly. But in the NBA, the Philadelphia 76ers had drafted me once I announced that I was coming out of school. So in those days, they held your rights for a lifetime, mm. meaning that if you were going to play for a team, it had to, it was only going to be Philadelphia in the NBA. So, um, and then, um, you know, I, I got to talk with several of the players from, from the Pacers. They had just come off a championship season, their first one. There was a buzz in Indianapolis about what they've accomplished and, um, so I uh, I uh, met with uh, with the coach and the general manager, and uh, they expressed an interest in having me, and and that 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 solidified everything in terms of making my decision. Uh, it's really interesting here because obviously you go to the ABA, you go to the Pacers, and you win back to back championships. You, right. you you are playing at just an incredible level. Um, you actually your last year with the Pacers. You also your first stint with the Pacers. You get to the finals. But what I really want to focus on is, you know, my dad. From the time I remember being a, a conscious human being, would tell right. me about the great Big George McGinnis. And when right. I got really excited as a basketball fan to watch Michael Jordan play, but then when LeBron came on the scene and I got real excited about LeBron, my dad right. would say, "Let me tell you something." There was a LeBron before LeBron. His name was George McGinnis. He was a yeah. man amongst boys. And we've heard several people, including Steve Downing, uh, tell us about how great you were on the court, and the stats back that up. But there's another LeBron comparison that's really interesting to me, which is LeBron really is looked at as the poster child for taking on uh, the power of the player and really shifting the the balance of power in the NBA from owners and one-sided contracts to players really taking ownership of where they want to play, mobility amongst teams. You really were 30 years ahead of your game here, maybe 40 years ahead of, of, ahead of your time, when right. you sued the NBA and its 18 teams because of this lifetime rights that the Sixers claimed on you. Is that correct? Right. Correct. So can right. you just walk us through that, George, on what the thinking was back then and what were you well, hoping to accomplish? Well, certainly I thought it was totally unfair that uh, someone could draft you and then just hold your rights uh, for your entire lifetime of, uh, you know, whatever, you know, if, let's say if, if I'm 40 years old and I want to join a team in the NBA just to, you know, be a, a, a two-minute player, then I had to play with a certain team. It just it just seemed like it wasn't fair, and uh, so uh, we got together, uh, my agent and a few attorneys, and uh, 
And uh, I ended up signing with the Knicks uh, right. after I left Indiana. I didn't sign with the Philadelphia 76ers. And uh, I knew I didn't, you know, we didn't make the kind of money uh, that, you know, players make today. And, and I didn't have enough money to, 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 to defend this case. So the New York Knicks indemnified me. Hmm. And uh, they, they're the ones who put up the money to fight that case. And they end up losing. Hmm. Yeah, they were no fools. They, they didn't want you going to Philly. <laughs> right, right, right. Let's go back to the Pacers because this is really an incredible run you have with them, both with what you're doing individually and what you guys are doing as a team. And that had actually started before you got there. Can you tell us what it was like to play for fellow Hoosier legend, a former IU national champ point guard, Slick Leonard? Oh, he was he was great, and it's it's another Branch McCracken disciple, you know, just like Lee Watson had some of the same philosophies. He was a really really good playoff coach in pressure games. He he knew how to change strategies, change offenses. He could flip flop guys around. Uh, good, really good at that type of thing, and he got along very well with the players. Uh, guys would run through a wall for him. As I said, they had won a championship the, the year before I got there. So, you know, I I was just kind of walking softly um, when 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 I when I first came in there, and uh, had a pretty good rookie year. But yeah, it was it was a lot of fun because it was uh, you know coming from IU where you had all the turmoil with the guys my sophomore year to going to a team where. You know, everybody did everything together. You know, we rode horses. You know, we, we, we went out shooting guns. We did this. We did that. It was all together. So I just loved that whole concept of uh, unity back then. And and he really became more to you than just a coach, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Like a second father. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I like that you said you really, uh, you know, walked softly. Your walking softly turned into four years averaging 25.2 points and 12.9 rebounds a game your first four years in in the ABA. I'm just curious because we love hearing the stories. In the ABA those first four years, who was the best player you played against? Oh, without question, Julius Irving. But there were so many others. George Gerving, uh, Artis Gilmore, uh, Rick Berry, who came to our league. Uh, you know, there was, uh, there was great players everywhere, you know, um, but um, I, I think the guy who probably was a flagship guy of the league was Julius and, um, you know, and it, it was, it was very competitive. Uh, you, you played the same team over and over and over and over again. So you got to know him pretty well, you know, sure. uh, uh, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And um, there was, there was something about the ABA that um, even though you played against these different teams, uh, there was a camaraderie that we had because, you know, we were, the, we were kind of the stepchild to the NBA and um, no one really ever thought that this league had the best players. And uh, in actuality, when we merged, we found that out the first couple of years of the All-Star game, most of those players were ABA guys. (laughs) Now, can you talk a little bit more about that dynamic of the ABA being the the stepbrothers? 
it really allowed for uh, a flourishment of of personality and an individual style you know both in the way you know played and and you know three point shot and all that kind of great stuff can you talk to us about what made the aba so fun not only to play for but to watch as a fan well yeah you know i i watched some of the old football shows um, I was watching one the other night. The old Baltimore Colts. There was a guy named Art Donovan. Oh, sure. Probably one of the all-time funniest ex-athletes ever. Now he's no longer living, but boy, he he was a great storyteller. And uh, you know, our our coach Bobby Leonard, he he told great stories. And uh, then he you know he could, he could do certain things. Yeah, we we're like we we're playing in a game in uh against denver larry brown was a coach at that time and um this this was a brutal series that we played this was my i think my fourth year maybe my third year my third year because i won two championships my first two years and then all of our veterans had left and we were kind of in a rebuilding mode but we ended up getting back to the finals that year but we played denver in uh western conference final and the seventh game was out there. And, uh, you know, we – it was a tight game throughout the entire game. and Maybe this was a sixth game. I'm sorry. But anyway, he calls a play for me to kind of – they were going get, to get the ball in, reverse the ball on the other side of the floor. I was going to get a pick underneath the bucket, come around, try and get the ball, take it up, either get fouled or try and score. Well, during the process of the play, the play broke down. We did get the ball in. We had a kid named Billy Keller who went to Purdue, played with Rick Mount, who was a tremendous shooter, and he played at the same high school I did and on the 1965 state championship team at Washington High School, which which was another inspiration for us in 69. But anyway, you know, with the seconds running down, you know, I say, Billy's open, Billy's open. I tell this, this kid, Kevin Joyce, who's got the ball, he throws it to Billy Keller in the corner, and he hits a three-point shot, and we win that game. Hmm. Now, on the way to the locker room, we're all jumping and screaming, hollering. You know, we beat them. Now we're going to the finals of the uh, ABA again, and we're going to play Kentucky. And we get to the locker room, and uh, all these reporters come in, and, you know, our coach Leonard is, 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 is sitting there. And a guy, I heard a reporter ask him, he says, well, coach, how could you make a call like that? in a tie ball game and a kid takes a three-point shot you know he says that's just inconceivable to me and slip looks at the reporter and says well son if you're going to be in the uh, if you're going to be a coach in this league you got to make decisions and it was the biggest broken play he never called a player it was it was old type of characters you know we had all kind of characters marvin barnes and you know we had the afros and the and, and the bell bottoms and you know it was just an incredible league a lot of characters a lot of good guys though now uh you did pretty well in that playoff run you nearly averaged a triple double at 32 points 16 rebounds eight assists in those 18 games just one of the great playoff runs ever but i do want to ask when did your signature one-handed jump shot develop? Was that was that earlier, you know, high school, college, or when did that really become your go-to weapon? You know, like I said, my idol was Oscar, and he always put the ball back behind his head when he shot. And uh, I started doing that, and I had these big hands, and that's the way it developed. It was an awful shot. I, I don't think 
any of my coach ever liked me shooting. <laughs> but uh, it, it was just a, a bad habit that I picked up that I could not get out of. It was hard for me to put two hands on the basketball. Maybe you couldn't get out of that habit because the shot kept going in. Yeah, <laughs> the well, results yeah, were it was working for me there, yeah, yeah. So we went over what happened then with the Knicks and then uh, kind of forcing the hand of the 76ers, which ended up being great leverage for you, uh, right. where you signed a six-year, no-cut, no-trade, no-option contract for $3.2 million with the Philadelphia 76ers after four years of playing with the Pacers. Now, I know I say six years, $3.2 million in 2020, and people think, oh, that's not that big of a deal. But that was a huge contract when you signed it. It, it was a huge contract, one of the biggest in, in professional basketball. But uh, What it, did that it, feel like, George? I mean, you, oh you, you struggled financially your family struggled your father passed away made things harder for your family and your mom and now this is really you know we're talking in mid-70s this is kind of generational wealth at this point this sets up your whole family just tell us what that was like for you well it was it was incredible i i just thought man i i just can't i'm just thinking about where i come from you know this whole process of you know, high school, my little neighborhood, and then IU and the Pacers, and, you know, I end up at this spot. Uh, I just felt like one of the most fortunate guys in the world, you know, and very blessed. Uh, I have to ask, we, we know uh, when with your signing bonus money that you originally got, you bought your mom a house, but now yes. you get this big contract, one of the biggest that's ever been signed. Did you buy right. yourself anything silly? Uh, yeah, yeah, I bought a couple. I, I like, I think I had three or four cars, but I never went crazy. I never went really crazy. Um, what was that first car though that you bought? Uh, it was an XKE Jaguar. Oh, nice. what year was it brand new? Yeah, it was a 1973. Oh. And you know, I wish I had that car today because it would have been a lot of money. No oh, kidding. My dad has a 67 uh, that he still has, oh. and it's his pride oh, and joy. Man. They're the most beautiful car. I mean, I love I love driving that car. Oh. So, uh, But I drove a Cadillac back in those days, and then I drove a truck. Uh, for most of my career, I drove a truck. So you get to Philly, and they were bottom dwellers before you got there. You, In your first season, you're all-NBA first team. You turn them into instant contenders. But really, right. to, to get to the next level, a guy shows up the next season who you seem to think pretty highly of, this Dr. J fellow. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to now be his teammate as opposed to his opponent? Well, um, you know, we had uh, had a really good year the first year I got there, made the playoffs, and, uh, you know, we brought the fan base back. Uh, there was a little bit of excitement, a little bit of excitement in the air in, in Philadelphia about the team. And then all of a sudden I had the coach and general manager come to me and says, hey, we got a chance to sign Julius Irving. What, what do you think? I said, you go get him right now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's what happened. And uh, so we end up uh, – having some 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 really good uh, good years and uh, things kind of fell off but yeah we went to the finals it was it was incredible you know the thing about Julius is that you know I knew how good he was because we got to play against him uh, about six times during the year in the old ABA because there were so few teams that you played 
against a team a lot of times, so I knew how great he was. But to play with him for a full season, almost every game you saw something that he had, I had never seen before done on a basketball court. He was an amazing guy, amazing. What was – is there a play – I'm sure there are many, but one that sticks out that that you just caught yourself on the court being. Oh, a, a... yeah. They do a lot of alley-oop passes now. You see these great alley-oop passes. And I think it was Doug Collins threw him a pass. It, it looked like it, it was almost going out of bounds. And he jumped up and grabbed it with one hand and almost brought it back around the backboard and dunked it. It was like, you know, I'd never seen anything like that. <laughs> and it was almost something like that every game. You would see something that he would do that would say, oh, my God, did you see that? <laughs> it's crazy. George, when you think back on your career in the NBA and ABA, is there a play that you made that sticks out as like, almost surprising yourself or just one that makes you incredibly happy one singular play um yeah i think so our second year um uh, we're playing in the aba finals against kentucky dan Issel and gilmore and um um they had a really really good team um I'm trying to think of a little guard saying he was in the hall of fame he went in before i went in um Louis Dampier, I'm sorry, Okay, who was a really fine player. But anyway, we're in the fifth game down in Kentucky. And, uh, again, it's a really, really close ball game. And Slick calls a play for me. And um, I botched the play and lose the ball out of bounds. I mean, just had it in my hands. Here I go up for a little lay-in and just come out of my hands. So we call a timeout, or Kentucky calls a timeout. And um, so, you know, we were just going to play straight man-up defense and, you know, not foul and, you know, try and challenge a shot without fouling. So there was – I saw this play. They took it out the ball out at half court, and I saw this play develop. And I, I, it's just weird. I just could see it that – all everybody lined up at the half court line. The four guys broke the Kentucky guys broke toward their bucket, and the guy I was guarding kind of went in the back court to receive the ball. I could almost visualize this play before it happened. I said, "I know they're not going to do this," and they did it. And I intercepted the ball and went in and scored, and we won the game. So nice. that was the biggest biggest play I've ever made. Uh, I'm curious, George. So after you signed this no six-year, no-cut, no-trade contract, you play a few years with Philadelphia, and then you are traded to the Nuggets. Did they have to come get your permission for that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I had to give them permission, yeah. And, yeah. and what was it about that? Were, were Was your time just done in Philadelphia and you were ready for yeah, a change? Uh, they were ready for a change. We had went to a finals. We had had a great year. Then we went to the finals. Then we got beat in the first or second round the next year. And they just wanted to bring in some new players. And it really was ended up being a good move for Philly because they ended up winning a championship with that team. Right. But they were surrounded with some really good players, Andrew Tony and you know, Moses Malone and people like that. We had more younger guys, Daryl Dawkins and and, 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 and and who was really, really good, but they were young. But uh 
yeah, that was, they came to me and I approved the trade. Yeah. Well, and, and you transition very well. You go to Denver and you become an all-star there too. So obviously right. the altitude didn't affect you negatively, but sadly, shortly thereafter, you blow out your Achilles. How long, yeah. how long did it take you to, and obviously sports medicine was nowhere near uh, then where it is now. How long did it take for you to accept that you weren't going to be the same player you were? And, and how did you adapt to that? You almost never accept it. You know, in your mind, you think you can always come back. It was, it was a couple, three years after I, I had left the game that I finally said, you know what, it was time for you to go. Um, you know, you always think that, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'll rehab this, I'll get better. But I was never the same after that injury. So uh, my game uh, obviously went downhill. My time as a player in terms of playing minutes were way down. I became a second-tier player. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it was hard to take. You know, I had a life of, you know, just playing this game that I love so much. Uh, from the time I was a little kid, now all of a sudden it's over. But, you know, um, fortunately for me, like I said, I, I, I have, was brought up uh, with great parenting, uh, two parents um, that taught me a lot. And my post-life has almost been better for me than my, my playing life. It's been great. Well, I want to get into that, but just to put a button on your professional playing career, this does not often get a chance to happen, but your hometown team trades for you and you're right. able to finish your career back in Indianapolis, back with the Pacers, where it kind of all started for you as a professional right. athlete. And I, I just I just know how happy it must have made every fan that went to that game to be able to watch you one more time. No matter if you weren't the player you were, you were still right. big George McGinnis. And, and as you know, everybody, when they look at you, remembers that, Washington state championship team. They right, remember right. your year in Indiana. They remember those ABA championships. So it must've been a nice kind of bittersweet thing to end your career where it started. Oh, oh, absolutely. That was, that was, that was the greatest thing is that I was able to end my career right here in Indiana. And I've always um, been uh, very well treated by the fans of the game here in Indiana. And I was treated well when I came back and, and then post career, I was treated well as, as as well. So yeah, it was it was a real treat to be able to retire right here in Indiana. Now, George, we know in forty nine states, it's basketball. It's just a game. Right. It's so right. much more than that in the state of Indiana. And there's been so many great players come through Indiana in in the last century plus. But right. you're the one that won it all in high school. You went and played for the most storied college program in the state, and and then you brought championships to the state with the Pacers. I think there's yeah. really no argument to be made that any single basketball player in the history of the state of Indiana should be more uh, uh, embraced, celebrated, or identified as as the single best Indiana basketball player who played and represented the state at all three levels. Do you ever yeah. do you are you ever just driving in the car or sitting at home and just realizing, man, I'm the one guy in the whole history who got to do it at all three levels at the highest level and make my state so proud. 
Well, yeah, and then and I think that the crowning factor was to be able to play at all three levels in this state and accomplish all that. So, you know, I knew that Oscar was uh, he he was a good guy who set the tone, but he never played here. He played in Cincinnati and in college and in the pro level. Uh, but I I was embraced from high school, college, and pro right here in Indiana. And uh, I, I, I still think to, to this day that um, uh, it's, it's one of the great blessings that I ever had. I see guys all the time who's 75, 80 years old, and they'll say, oh, I remember you in 69. I was sitting under this. I was sitting under the balcony in the state championship game. <laughs> that happened. So it's, it's really great, man. It's been a real blessing. And your post-playing career, George, obviously you've been – kind of married with the Pacers for a long time as well. But just kind of what has been uh, the highlight for you in the almost 40 years since since wrapping up your playing career? Well, you know, I, I think family first. You know, I, I was married to my high school sweetheart, and unfortunately I lost her last year. She caught cancer. And um, so, uh, so uh, well, yeah, we were together for 42 years, and uh, that was uh, – that was so amazing. I knew her. We went to the same uh, elementary school together, same junior high, same high school. So just going through that whole experience, my family background, uh, the kids on my high school team, um, we get together about every other week and uh, right around the corner from Washington High School, a place that's been there for over 100 years called Working Man's Friend. And they've got great hamburgers. We meet and have hamburgers every two weeks. So oh, that's great. About five or the six of the guys on my high school team, we still get together. So that's always a lot of fun. Is is Steve Downing part of that group? Absolutely. Steve Downing, Wayne, Wayne Pack, Jim, Jim Arnold, and a, a few of the reserves. Four starters. The other starter, Louis Day, who unfortunately died here a few years ago. But yeah, just about about six, five or six guys who show up every other week. Now, uh, as an Indiana kid growing up in the '80s and '90s, as a Pacers fan, I did not get to enjoy your glory days there. Uh, but for me, of course, uh, there was a pretty good player there named Reggie Miller. Can you talk about what he means to you and to that franchise? He um, he he was he was incredible. Um, you know. Folks in Indiana love guys who can really shoot the basketball. <laughs> Rick, Rick Mount, the Damon Bailey, you know, you just go throughout the years. All these guys were great scores. And uh, I remember the day Reggie was drafted, um, you know, they were booing the Pacers because everyone here wanted the Pacers to draft Steve Alford, who was a great high school and college player here. And, um, you know, Reggie, Reggie, you know, I think he felt like he had a lot to prove, but boy, did he win the win the fans over. He uh, he done more for uh, the NBA Pacers than any other player that ever played here. He was just tremendous. He was a great guy. He did a lot of stuff in the community. He is beloved here. And then you have Slick Leonard yelling "Boom, baby!" every time boom. he knocks one down. You just had to feel like it was one big happy family as all right. that was going on. Right. I, I told Slick, I says, "Man, you're the only guy I've ever known could make a life out of just boom, baby." You know. <laughs> <laughs> and George, besides the every couple weeks uh, 
hamburger uh, lunch or dinner that you get together for? What's keeping you busy these days? Well, um, I, uh, I've had a company I've had for 28 years um, uh, that we do a lot of uh, work with uh, big manufacturers, Toyota, Cummings Engine, people like that, uh, in, in different sectors of uh, manufacturing. Uh, that's been uh, been a lot of fun and interesting. So uh, I've done a done a lot of uh, stuff for the Pacers, the Parents. Uh, I worked for the lottery here for a while. I was a spokesperson for about ten years. And I I did some Butler games, which was very rewarding. I I was able to even uh, broadcast about seven or eight state high school championship games. Wow, that's <laughs> uh, awesome. That was uh, that was the epitome of, uh, of of it all, and uh, you know because you see not only the side where the team wins, but you also see the t- side where the team loses, and you feel so bad for the kids. But yeah, I've had a I've had a really good life, man. I've been blessed. Now there's a another pretty good Indiana basketball uh, Hoosier, I should say Indiana University Hoosier basketball player. Uh, who's on the Pacers these days? Obviously, the the season has been postponed. We'll see what's going to happen with that. But is there is there a connection with somebody like Victor Oladipo, who you know? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, he suffered a pretty severe injury, and he was just coming around, getting back to the old Victor right before uh, we had this little issue, uh, the coronavirus. But uh, he is an absolute great person. Uh, the fans love him. He's enthusiastic. He um, again, he's one of those guys who are always reaching out in the community to do something. So I think he's got a bright future ahead of him. And uh, he was he was real. I loved him at Indiana University. And um, I think his first two or three teams that he played for in the NBA didn't appreciate what they had. And I think the Pacers saw something in him that other teams didn't see. And uh, it was almost unleashing that energy that that he had when he got here and he has been an absolute joy to watch uh play one question i gotta ask you before we we let you let you go here when you did leave indiana after your sophomore year and they hired coach knight there is some rumors out there that you left because coach knight came in and said there's gonna be no stars on this team did you have any relationship with coach knight was that was that just urban legend no, I never ever met him or talked to him. You know, he was only I was uh I think I was 19 20, I was 19. He was just a 29-year-old young guy <laughs> that army no one had ever heard of him. Right. And uh no, we never had a conversation. And uh yeah, after I got done playing uh with the Pacers after they brought me back, um uh, Steve Downing got us together. And we we had a, an incredibly long, good relationship. And he always refers to the fact that in 19, I think it was it 74 that they played UCLA in the semifinal 73, game? 73 in the so final he, four, yeah. He says, well, if we'd had you here, I think we'd have won that, George. I says, you don't realize how, how I sit there. We were on the road playing in the NBA and uh watching that game um i was in the aba actually watching that game and just thinking boy i wish i was on that team because Mm -hmm. 
they gave UCLA all they wanted. And I became good friends with Coach Knight over the years. So that um, is and, uh, that's beautiful. I mean, there is nothing yeah. you talk about how the fans in the state love good shooting. That is absolutely true. But the other thing we yeah. love is to know that Indiana basketball is a family and that that the people are connected like you playing for Slick Leonard and you and Steve Downing still friends and some connection to coach Knight and Victor that right. that just kind of it's what separates Indiana basketball from any other place in the world right and i get asked all the time when i was playing in the leagues is what's what's so what's so great about playing here in indiana i says you know what you wouldn't get it you know you're 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 from jersey or you know you're from this place or that place. I said, it's just something special about the game. You know, um, when I went into the Hall of Fame in 2017, I uh, got a lot of different things that I read about Indiana basketball. You know, we the the it was started in Massachusetts with a peach uh, uh, with a peach uh, uh, basket, but the first rim with nets. Come right here from Indiana, Crawfordsville, Indiana. So oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So we we played a big role in the, the the this whole explosion of this game of basketball. It was a we played a big role in it. So yeah, I I, I uh, and I think it's carried over. You know, 1954, a kid hit a shot. They said was heard around the world, and it inspired a sports movie called Hoosiers. Yep. I think it's one of the great movies that's ever been made. Absolutely. Best sports movie ever. Yeah. And that's kind of started this crazy love of high school basketball and college basketball here in Indiana. Now, obviously you're, you know, very busy with family and, and the, the, uh, the company. Do you get a, a chance to, to keep an eye on the Indiana Hoosiers these days and see how they're doing? Oh, absolutely. I'll watch all their games. Yeah. And, um, up and down year this yep. year, uh, but they were young, and uh, so they got they're they're going through some growing pains. I don't know how everything is going to uh, pan out here. You know, we're all this whole country now is uh, we're kind of under a lot of stress and pressure with this coronavirus, and we don't know what's going to happen in the future. So. Um, I just hope everybody just stay safe and uh, stay in the stay in your house, and hopefully we get through this as a country, and uh, and then we can get things back to normal. But uh, I can I could see um, how athletes and everybody else who are just so frustrated not being able to do what they do on a daily basis. It's uh, it's really sad not to be able to watch sports on TV. It is. So, it is one of the yeah. great escape. We took it for granted. You know, it's yeah. an escape. Yeah. It's something that connects us all. It, it's, right. it's truthfully why we've continued to do the podcast because it gives us a little time every week to kind of connect to these things and these memories that distract us from the real stuff going on in the world. And uh, I got to ask you, George, when was the last time you were back in Bloomington? And when was the last time you saw an Indiana University game in person? Uh, about three years ago. All right. Very good. Well, we got to get when when this all does settle back in, we got to get you back in Bloomington and to Assembly yeah, Hall. And we would love to yeah. be there for that game, too. It's always been a lot of fun. It's uh, I, I just love being down there, the whole atmosphere. 
you know, once you're an Indiana fan, you're always an Indiana fan. So whether I'm there or I'm looking at it on my couch, I'm always rooting for the Hoosiers. Well, George, you know that means so much to all Hoosiers to know you're you're there in spirit and, and watching what's going on on the court. And I will say, uh, if we are so fortunate to be in Bloomington at the same time, White Castle is on me. <laughs> there you go. I'll take yep. I'll get I'll get I'll get that sack of ten then. I'll That's get. right. <laughs> yeah, you're going from eight to ten. But then then we go to Culver's. We're gonna go to to John Laskowski's Culver's for for dessert. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hear he's doing, I hear he's doing big business down there too. There's just something special to know you're supporting somebody who wore the cream and crimson. I mean, it's there you go. Uh, George, I cannot wait to uh, finish this with you and call my dad and tell him that I got to talk to the legend, Big George McGinnis. Uh, it has been an honor and a pleasure. We have heard stories about you since we were little kids, and you are as classy and as much of a gentleman as everybody says you were, and we just cannot thank you enough for what you've given the game of basketball, what you've given the state of Indiana, and wish you nothing but luck and hope you're safe and stay healthy and hope to talk to you soon and meet you in person soon. All right. Thank you much, guys. Be safe. I mean, the legend. An absolute legend. Big George. You know, we could have spent more time talking about what he did at Indiana in his one season. I just want to rattle off a couple things now. Go. He led the Big Ten in scoring and rebounding in his one year, his first year playing college basketball. One of just five people to ever do that in the 40 years of conference records. He scored over 30 points 12 times in the one season. (laughs) He scored over 35 points eight times. He scored 37 against Michigan and, and Michigan State. He had 23 rebounds twice, 20 rebounds twice, 19 rebounds once, 17 rebounds three times. He is the third best rebounding season of all time at IU. He's not like a center. And they played less games then. Yes. I mean, it, and then and then his ABA career, which we mentioned, you know, he talked about not one not knowing if he could be at the level that he was in high school and college. Well, his first four years in the NBA, I think I mentioned it during the podcast, but he averaged 25 points, 12 rebounds, pretty close. And he finished his professional playing career averaging over 20 and 10. I mean, it's unbelievable. He's a Hall of Famer. You have this era that we we missed completely. So you you hear stories, you occasionally see a clip or, or a mention is made, but I had so much fun going back in and looking at his highlight reels. Like, oh, okay, what what was he really all about? Hearing him talk, hearing the stories from people who played or coached with him, and instantly this name, this legend, suddenly starts to fill out in, in a fuller dimension and I get, you know, this is late last night and I should be going to sleep, but I'm just keep going down the rabbit hole because I'm like, oh, my gosh, this this guy is is for the state of Indiana as good as it can ever be. Right. You know, it I mean, played at such a level that you can't match it. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking, uh, who was I thinking did, uh, you know, like Larry Bird, obviously a great high school player, yeah. came back and did. Uh, great things uh, with the Pacers, obviously great things with Indiana State, but, you know, he didn't play for the Pacers. And this is the one guy who did it at the highest level at all three levels. And I, 
it just so many stars would have to align for that ever to happen again. I hope for our sake, somebody else does and can get yeah. themselves into a, a, a debate conversation about who was the greatest three-level Indiana basketball player ever. But there's nobody else in that conversation now. No, and the truth is, like, I try to think of just anybody in any state. What LeBron means to Ohio, you know, what he did at the high school level in Ohio, then he didn't play in college. Didn't play college. But he comes back to Cleveland, wins a title. I get I get why Ohio has this love affair. But again, then he leaves. George finished his career with Indiana and then never left put down roots there started a company started a family like he is indiana basketball and again i just i think about my dad all these times telling me he was a man amongst boys he was a man amongst boys he was lebron before lebron i went back and looked at team photos he is so big (laughs) right like he's not seven feet tall but he is a truck he is a truck he is so wide and so strong can you imagine with modern day training, with modern day, um, like you were talking about, uh, sports, sports science medicine, and yeah. sports medicine, what George McGinnis would be in today's world of sports. I mean, the star level that he'd be at, you're talking about the LeBron level player. And what was so rare then is we've been in this uh, age now where the game has opened up, much like the early ABA, but really since Golden State came along and really spread out the court, and now even if you're 7-3, you're expected to have an outside shot. George was was a, such a complete player. He had handled. He could use both hands. He could shoot inside. He could back somebody down. He could finish at the rim. It, it, he was a great defender, and he had amazing passing uh, and vision on the court. And, and, and along with the physical comparisons, just the overall game, it's very fair to say he was the 1970s LeBron James. And we talk about or Le- LeBron is the 2000s, 2000s yes. George McGinnis. LeBron is now in the conversation of one of the very greatest of all time because he's been able to play like a hundred thousand minutes. He takes such incredible care of his body with all those advances in sports science and sports medicine. And poor George, he, had an Achilles injury, and, that injury and that's like a death sentence for a basketball player. Even now, that one's still well, kind of Kobe. Iffy. I mean, Kobe had the Achilles near the end of his, closer to the end of his career, but he never came back. But also, George was big. Like, it hurts guys more that, I mean, we saw it a little bit with Deron Davis. You know, big guys struggle with the Achilles injury more than a guard who could potentially come back from it. It'll be interesting to see, like, KD being so skinny. Yeah. Is he able to, and I think he will have more tools to rely on because he's seven feet tall and can just shoot three too i yeah. mean like nobody can guard him but the other thing about that you mentioned about lebron being able to play a hundred thousand minutes i think there's another element that is so obvious that that we just kind of overlook it but every play that lebron has is documented on video right so you see them ad nauseum that was not the case for George. NBA games, ABA games were barely played on television. NBA games were played on tape delay. So we just don't have the amount of footage and film that is just at our disposal like we do for these current guys. And the guys who played before that era of just kind of ubiquitous video are disadvantaged because of it. 
But looking at the numbers, they are stupid numbers. Yeah. I mean, they are stupid numbers. 25 points and 12 rebounds in the ABA his first four years. Those are crazy numbers. That You're not an all-star at the professional level with that. You are a first ballot Hall of Famer. MVP. MVP candidate. And in the conversation, if you do that over multiple years, for the best ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. So... His greatness was diminished because of it got cut short by injury. It was diminished because he played in the ABA for a little bit and then had to switch to the NBA. It was diminished because TV wasn't what it was and the era that he played in. And also, the guy is just such a classy dude. He's not like a me-first guy. Right. Um, the the Kentucky All-Star story is so good. Oh, 53 <laughs> points and 30 rebounds. And like, like w- w- name another player who had a game like that. No, yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure Wilt, Wilt did it a bunch of times. Yeah, that's that's pretty good company to be pretty in. good company. And I love the Bobby Knight stuff. Yeah. Again, like because it was urban legend. I mean, it had been told to me Knight came in and said, there's going to be no stars on this team. And George was like, ah, no way. Couldn't be further from the truth. Yep. Had no idea they had a good relationship. The, Thank though, you, Steve Downing, though, for that. T- talking to Steve Downing, clearly those guys knew this new coach coming in was a crazy person. <laughs> yeah. And I, I do he had a not, reputation. I do not think that affected George's decision whatsoever, but there was definitely an awareness of who was coming to town. But I think George laid it out. I mean, George's father passed away. He was the breadwinner for the family. They struggled anyway. He needed to go make money. And and even that, because it was great you brought up how he was a trailblazer in fighting for empowerment to the players to, to play where they wanted to on yes. their own terms. But he was also a trailblazer in leaving school early. Yeah. You know, it was like when he did that and not, you know, 10 years later, Isaiah did it. That was still really controversial. And people were like, oh, geez, is this... I mean, are they, can they be ready? Is this is this is this bad for them? Is it bad for the game? And it's like, no. It, the, the truth <laughs> is, well, it's I don't it's think good. the answer is no. It's it can be and it can't be like anything. Right. For some people, staying four years in college is terrible mm-hmm. because you're in this bubble and you get to do things that f- that you're protected in a way that you wouldn't be in real life. It it's it's such a BS argument. It's like every case is different. And the point of college is to prepare you for life after. Mm-hmm. He needed to go to life after, and he did pretty well. He did. He did. When you're when you're George McGinnis or Isaiah Thomas, not only because of your incredible talent, but because of your life circumstances, it was something that obviously worked out really well for everybody involved, except maybe IU. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but the seeing those guys go out into the professional ranks and just tear it up. And I mean, I think we can we can say they were the to this point, the greatest professional basketball players. The Van Arsdales obviously were multiple time all stars. Walt Bellamy was great. You know, so there there's a lot of people in who went on to have the the great, but pro- Isaiah and McGinnis are a step above. It's when I mean, he was a Isaiah was a twelve time All Star. McGinnis was six time and in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. I mean, and won championships and was first team. And I, I, it's on a different level. This guy. One thing that connects them all is even just playing one year or two years. Hoosiers for life. Hoosiers for life, baby. They love IU just like we do, just like we mere mortals. They love Bloomington. Wow. Well, follow us on Twitter at Hoosier Hysterics for the hysterics. No E, no I, but But the the sometimes sometimes why. why.
From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And guys you probably know by now are Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics.